Last week we started uh, another key passage in Romans, and I've been showing you, uh, as we've been coming through the book of Romans now for a number of months, how that uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8 are really the great doctrinal issues that uh, for us as believers. When we get into the book of Romans, we're coming into a time period where uh, basically the, uh, uh, the Old Testament, uh, God dealing with the nation of Israel and the Old Testament setup is passed away. We are moving into the church age. And uh, you find that uh, everything uh, is now suddenly changed, where once it was focused on the nation of Israel and everything that they were doing, now suddenly it's focused on the church. And the Apostle Paul comes on the scene and he begins to establish New Testament local churches, just like ours, in various places all over the known world uh, through his three missionary journeys. And that's why when you come to chapter 6, 7, and 8, he, he, he really, really focuses on what we now as Christians ought to believe. He focuses on the struggles that we have, and, you know, and he, he's very open and very honest about it, and it's something that we can all learn from. And you remember uh, last uh, time we started in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 18, and it said this, Being then free from sin, ye because of the servants of right, ye become the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanliness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? Well, the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. And, Lord, as the song was said, you look beyond my sin and saw my need. And Lord, that's so where we need to be today in our lives as your children. And help me, Father, to uh, take the Word of God and to lay it out uh, more clearly and, and more effectively. May these, your people, who are struggling to do what's right with you and want to learn all about you, may the Word of God come across clear today and, and, and in their hearts. And Lord, we'll just ask you to forgive us for whatever we've done this week that we may not have confessed that in this quietness of this moment we'll, we'll look deep inside and will not hinder the Holy Spirit of God to teach us the doctrines that we need today by unconfessed sin, that even now you'll bring them back to our remembrance and we'll, we'll clean it up, Lord, that we might be able to do business with you today uh, through the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for this church. Thank you for the great men and women that uh, make it happen and, and do all that needs to be done. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake we ask it. Amen. You remember last time we... Uh, we talked about verse 19 in particular. And uh, we talked about how God understands our weaknesses. I think that's probably the greatest concept that, that, uh, that came out of last week's sermon. And uh, I'm sure that there were other things that you got out of it. But for me, as I said last week, the greatest thing when we talked about Psalms chapter 78 was the fact that God understands our struggles. I think sometimes we think that God is the kind of God who just waiting around a corner to drop the hammer on us, you know, when we do something wrong. And yet, God is a God of holiness, and God is not, uh, not God uh, can drop the hammer. But uh, you want to always realize that when God, if you're saved this morning, God looks at you not as an adversary. He doesn't look at you as someone that hates Him. He looks at you as His child. 
And like any loving parent, he wants his child to grow up and be everything that that child has the potential to be. So in the course of our Christian walk, he deals with us in those areas and brings to light those things that we need. And I showed you last week in Psalm 78 how the Bible gives that great verse where it says for in dealing with the nation of Israel. And again, we saw the great parallels between the two. How Israel as a nation so parallels our walk with God as individuals. And he said to them, he said, after all that God did for them, how they had kept forgetting God and, and going after other gods, and yet instead of God coming down and wiping out the nation of Israel, the Bible says that, that he remembered that they were but flesh. What a great passage that is. You know, we have been looking at every avenue, every concept, every, every combination of biblical principles to help you achieve that victorious Christian life. And, you know, and we are living in a day and age in Christianity where there's no question about it. We are living in a day and age in Christianity where Christians are defeated. There's never been a time when sin has probably run more rampant in the body of Christ to, to destroy. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, but uh, my job and what I'm trying to do is to help you uh, get around those things uh, through the consistency of your relationship uh, with Christ and showing you how to really build the right kind of relationship. We open up this great study with a great passage here in, in verse 19 where it says, I speak after you the manner of man because of the infirmity. And remember what I told you? I told you that the Bible specifically lists three infirmities that we have. Three things in our lives that we are, are identified as problems. Now, if you really want to start to fix your life and put your life where it needs to be. I mean, uh, you know where you start? You start with where God clearly tells you we have issues. And if, if, if I want to make my life more uh, perfect for God and perfect myself and, and, and what God wants for me, uh, as I should and as you should, uh, where would I start? Well, wherever the Bible tells you there is a problem is where you start. And uh, you start always where God clearly defines and says, this is what your problem is. You see, each of us have individual issues, and maybe my individual issues are not yours and yours aren't mine, but the reality is because we are human beings and we still are in the flesh, the bottom line is we all have some issues that affect all of us, and those issues will be the same. And if you're ever going to get to the individual issues you have, you're going to have to target the main issues that God says you and I have, and of course, uh, talking about these three infirmities. You'll remember that uh, last week uh, that the first infirmity we talked about was the flesh, found in verse 19, and the struggles that we have. I've already showed you that, you know, in dealing with the flesh, uh, that it's something that everybody struggles with. There's never going to be a person who gets saved that doesn't have some issues they have to struggle through. The real question is, will you deal with it and will you take it to the Word of God and will you let God help you with it? And we talked about the three aspects, how that, that you do that. First of all, you get to know who God is. You get to know who God is. You learn about God. You learn about Him in a way that introduces you to Him, that He in time becomes your closest friend and certainly your greatest ally. Then the second thing we talked about was the fact that we have to reckon ourselves dead. And what does that mean? It means that we, we, we use, as I, as I use the example, dead reckoning. We focus on, on something. Focus in my life, it's the, it's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Focus on His coming. Focus on the promises. And, uh, you know, from that point, then you, you, you yield yourself. That was the third thing. 
What does that mean? It means you start doing something for God. You know, so many of God's people go through their whole lives and never meaningfully do anything for the Lord. And my job is to help you and, and to put things into your life and, and, and help you get these three things working in your life. Basically, we came down to you kill the flesh, but you fill the spirit. You kill the flesh, but you fill your spirit. You fill your spirit with the things of God. And, uh, you know, I gave you a great verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, uh, Dearly beloved, having these promises, we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit uh, by the principles of the Word of God, taking the Word of God into our lives and allowing it to do that. Then we looked at our second infirmity. And our second infirmity we talked about was the fact that we don't know how to pray. That was found in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Now, I told you last week, and I'm going to remind you again this week, you know, when we get into Romans chapter 8, we're going to really go through an intense, very uh, detailed study of how to build an effectual prayer life. And uh, back in the bookstore back there, uh, there are some great autobiographies of some men uh, who, who did some tremendous things in their lives. I was looking at the book back there of Adonai and Judson, and I, on the cover it, it shows him you know, walking up the gangplank of a ship. And he left and went to the foreign field and had been gone uh, for you know, 30, 40, 50 years of his life. And they, many times they were in situations where they, they, they had nothing. And all they had, all they had to rely on was the prayer chain that they had with God between them and God. And boy, you want to you wanna see how important prayer is. Go back and read those men's lives and uh, they're incredible. And a lot of it, when you start to build relationships with God and you start to learn these things, obviously a lot of things that you learn is by other men and women uh, who, who really developed their life and, and God used in a great way. You can always learn from that. Always learn from that. And we talked about, you know, how, how God is a young Christian, that we don't know how to pray, that that most of us, you know, really uh, don't uh, understand how the concept of prayer works. But we also talked about how that if you're a young Christian here today, God covers the basis for you. You know, the process of your Christian life, again, is much like the nation of Israel. You know, one of the things I found just kind of tucked back in there when you start to study the nation of Israel, you know, in Exodus, they go into Egypt, end of Genesis, really. They go into Egypt. And the Bible says in, in the beginning of Exodus that, you know, well, at the end in Genesis, everything is fine. Joseph's there, you know, and he's, he's running everything, and Jacob and all the folks are down there, and uh, that's where God had brought them. And, and, uh, but then something happens. And what happens is, it talks about in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, it says, there arose a new king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. And immediately we see the, the circumstances reverse. Immediately now we begin to see where uh, the persecution comes into the nation of Israel. And we begin to see how that God, uh, a little bit later on, who fulfills His promise and He brings them out. Now when He brings them out of Egypt, Egypt in your Bible is a picture of the world. When He brings them out of Egypt, it's a picture of you and me being delivered from this world the day you got saved. When you study that passage, and if you kind of put a map to it, you'll find that when God takes them out of Egypt, He kind of brings them around this way and brings them back around over here, and it's a period of time uh, before they ever have their first conflict and their first battle. You know why? 
I'll tell you why. Because God wanted them to get their feet on the ground and get themselves spiritually grounded with Him before they met the first major battle in their life as a nation. You know what that tells me? That tells me when you first get saved or maybe you're a young Christian who's trying to figure all this thing out, you know what God does? He does the same thing with you. He takes you around the long way. He doesn't allow any real disasters to hit your world. He doesn't allow you to fall into a real battle till you're spiritually ready. He lets you dig in a little bit and learn some things before the first conflict comes. Why? When you go through the, uh, the rest of Exodus and, and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, while the word Numbers is named after the fact that they were numbered for war, you'll find that they go through some tremendous battles and some tremendous conflicts. But not until they get themselves grounded with who they are with God. And it's the same way with you. You're a young Christian. You're somebody that, that is just trying to put it all together. And maybe you've been saved for 5, 10, 15 years, but you just never really got plugged in. Here's the way God does it. God allows you, God allows you some time before you have to meet the real opposition to kind of figure out where you're at and let us ground you here. So when it comes to praying, I want to tell you this. You may be a young Christian, and the Bible says we don't know how to pray as we ought, and that's true. But my point is this. In your life, God will allow you the grace and take care of you, even though you and I don't know exactly what we're doing. Well, I do, but you, I mean, I'm supposed to. You, you get a pass. I don't. I would have liked to put me in that one, but I just can't do that. But you get a pass. God works with you. He takes care of you in spite of your inability to understand exactly what everything is going on the right way in your life. That's just the way He does it because He's a, he's a compassionate God. He's a loving God, and He wants to take care of you and take care of me. And, you know, the older you get in the Lord, there comes a point in your life, and you need to understand this too. That doesn't last forever. Israel got a pass from having to fight the enemy for a while, but it didn't last forever. And at some point in your life, if you're growing properly and you're getting the things of God in your life the way you should, then there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to enter into your first conflict. There's going to come a time in your life where you get into your first issue that you have to deal with. And at that point, it'll be a, it'll be a crossroads for you. You'll, you'll decide that you're going to go to the next level or you'll decide you're not. And that'll pretty much, you know, determine where you go with the Lord from that point on. The, the longevity of any relationship, you know, any long-term relationship, you know what, it, it's a thing where uh, husbands and wives kind of know what the other one is going to say. You know, if you've been married for 40, 50 years, you probably can, if, if I would ask you about uh, something, that you, what your wife would say about this, you probably could say, this is what she'll say. There's been times that I've asked a, a wife, uh, you think your husband will, oh yeah, he'll be glad to do that. You think your husband will be okay? No, 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 I know him, he, he, won't, he won't do that. You know why you can answer for them like that? And most of the time you're accurate? Because you've lived with them so long. The relationship has been there for what, 20, 30, 40 years in some cases? That after all of that longevity of time, you pretty much know what that person is going to say. Well, that's the way it ought to be with God, see? That's the way it ought to be with God. In time in your life, as you build your relationship with God, and you come to the point where you get to know what He 
thinks and how he responds to certain situations. You ought to be able to tell somebody what God thinks about it. Just as you could go to, to my wife or even my kids and they'll say, I'm going to ask your dad about doing this. And my wife would say, well, I don't think you better ask him that, you know. I don't think he's going to do that. Or my kids would say, oh, yeah, you know, he ain't going to do that. Why? Because they've seen me in action, good and bad. They've seen the way I respond to things. They know pretty much where I'm going and what I'm going to do and what I think. You and I ought to have the same relationship with God. You and I should be like this. We ought to play a game. We ought to play a game. We ought to play a game. Some Thursday night we ought to play this game. What would the game is simply like this? And I wouldn't put any new Christians in it because uh, you're not maybe ready yet unless you said I want a shot at it. <clears throat> but <clears throat> we ought to play a game. It ought to be this. I'll give you a problem. And in five seconds or less, you give me where you're going to go to answer the problem. Now, that's a good game, see? Because <clears throat> that's the way it should work in your heart and your life all the time. You know what? When you deal with people, you know what the, you know what the real key to helping people with? They tell you your problem. While they're telling you your problem, you formulate the answer from the Word of God. When, if you come over and see me, you know, and you, uh, you start laying out your particular circumstance and your situation, and you're saying, well, you know, I, <clears throat> you know this is where I'm at. I, do, I struggle with this. I struggle with that. While you're telling me, while you're telling me, I am going systematically in my mind, cataloging where I'm going to go <clears throat> to give you the answer to your problem. It isn't going to be, well, this is Bob's homespun theology or his homemade a recipe for your problem, I'm going to take you where the Bible says, because, you know what? I know how God thinks. I know what He's going to say about this particular issue. That's the way we should be with the Bible. And that's what should happen in your life as you continue to grow. The Bible and the ministry is not about giving people our personal opinions. You know, I care no more for your personal opinion about something than I do my own. And I'll never give you, unless I quantify it and say, well, this is my personal opinion. But I'll never just give you my personal opinion about where it's at in life. My job as the pastor is to give you God's opinion on it, see? And, uh, you know, when it comes to prayer, the key is knowing what to ask and what not to ask. And I didn't get into this last week, and nor am I going to get into it today, but we will when we get into Romans chapter 8. As a Christian, there are some things in prayer you have a right to ask God for. And as a Christian, in prayer, you, there are some things you don't have a right to ask God for. You say, how do you know the difference? By knowing what He thinks. By being so close and intimate and building that relationship that in any given circumstance you say to yourself, I know what God says about this. I don't have a right to ask that. I know what God says about this issue. I do have a right to pray about that or ask for that. And, of course, that's the great key. That's the great key. Remember last week... <clears throat> I talked to about the two women in the Bible, and I showed you the great one in Matthew chapter 15. And I gave you five aspects that you need to have and I need to have in prayer. Then I showed you five reasons why we don't get our prayers answered the way we think we should. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's just, that's just a, some great stuff that will begin to help you. And, uh, and we'll put it together as we get on far in the book of Romans. I could never underestimate the importance of prayer in a Christian's life. But unfortunately, in most cases, and this is a sad thing to say, uh, our prayers never leave the room. Now, again, I put within that context all you young Christians who are trying to find your own way. But you know what? Prayer is a lot like mail in a letter. 
And maybe this will help you understand what I'm saying. If you sat down and you wrote a 10-page letter to somebody, and you wrote out there and you detailed everything in that letter to that person you wanted to say, and then you're going to mail it. So what do you do? You fold a letter up, drive off to the post office, drop it in a mailbox. You didn't put it in an envelope. You didn't put an address on it. You didn't put a stamp on it. You just simply wrote a letter, put it in everything that you wanted to say, and then took it over to the mailbox, dropped it in, and you thought the post office working person would figure it all out and get it to where it was supposed to go. Is that going to happen? No. And you know what? When it comes to prayer, your prayer, my prayer, there's an envelope it needs to go in. There's a certain way it needs to be addressed. And there needs to be a stamp on it. And there's some things that when you pray, you have to, you have to, you have to put that prayer in. And of course, most of God's people have no idea about that. And uh, if you would ask them to give you five verses on prayer in the Bible, uh, you know, to me, the, the most important verse in the Bible on prayer is Romans 8.26. says, I don't know how to pray. See, that's my infirmity. So if I want to get with God and I know how prayer port, important prayer is, where am I going to go after? I'm going to learn everything I can about prayer. And uh, I say that, when I say that, I say that in, in the case of young Christians, God takes care of you. God will do it. But as you get to a point in your life and you don't learn what's important to God, there comes a point where you just don't go any farther. And that's where you stay. And usually it begins to, you begin to take steps backwards. Now, those are the two things we talked about the last, last week. We didn't get through the third one, and I want to talk to you about the third one today, and we'll put this section complete then. And the third infirmity we have is found in, in Psalm 77, verse 10. You want to go to that and look at this. This is a great one. And probably, this is probably the worst one we have. Now, this one I can definitely put myself into because we're all in this boat. But Psalms chapter 77, verse 10. And here's what he says. And I said, this is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the Most High, right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works, the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate also in all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary who is so great a God as our God. Now, without a doubt, going back, and I've told you before how that the nation of Israel parallels where we're at. Without a doubt, Israel's greatest problem, Israel's greatest single issue that I think led to every other problem they had, was the issue that they continually forgot God. And I'm telling you, without a doubt, and I can use myself as the number one example, and I guarantee you, if it's my problem, it's your problem, and it's the problem of every child of God, and it's the problem that you're going to face every issue in your life, our biggest issue is simply going to be forgetting what God has done for you and for me. The Laodicea Church you know that we live in the time period. We know that there's seven periods in church history out of the book of Revelation. We know that they, it starts with the early church in Ephesus there and then runs up through all of the church period right up to the time that we live in. And we're living in Laodicea. We also know that the word Laodicea means rights of the people, justice for the people. 
Now, we also know that our biggest problem today is the fact that we want what we believe belongs to us and we forget about God's rights. And uh, we're a church that is totally focused on itself today. And because of that, we as God's people are always totally focused on ourselves today. And uh, simply put, my biggest problem, my biggest infirmity, and I guarantee it's going to be yours. You say, well, it isn't. Well, I ain't done yet. By the time I'm done, you'll understand why it is. Forgetting what God has done for you. You know, the ministry, people never remember what you did for them. They only remember what you didn't do for them. And some of you guys are going to be in the ministry. Some of your wives are going to be in the ministry. And you're going to find this is a true statement. If When it comes to the ministry, you better get one thing straight in your mind. You better continually remember why you're doing what you're doing. You better never forget that aspect. You better always remember and understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you're doing it just before people... I guarantee you, you're going to be sadly heartbroken because people uh, traditionally never remember what you did for them. They only remember what you didn't do for them. And we find this all the way through Christianity. Do you really know what's wrong with America today? Now, you know, we just finished the elections last week and, you know, we've talked a lot about John McCain and Obama and the political system and how it's messed up on whatever side you fall on and all of those things, you know. But you really know what's wrong with this country? I'm going to show you the bottom line what's wrong with this country. The thing that's wrong with this country and its bottom line, and this is not a political statement, this is a biblical statement. Because I don't care politically one way or the other. But if you really want to know what's wrong with this country, this country has forgotten some things. It really has. We just celebrated a couple of weeks, a couple of days ago on the 11th, Veterans Day. I bet you there is an Two people in this room this morning that could tell me what Veterans Day represents, when it got started, why it got started. It's just if you're a government worker, it's another holiday you get off. And yet Veterans Day is probably the reason why that you're not speaking German this morning or Japanese, depending which way you want to look at it. Memorial Day. Oh, I know what that means. That's our big picnic with all the ribs you can eat. I'm sure some of you think that that's how it got started. That they tasted my ribs and then said, let's make a national holiday out of it. Well, I got to tell you, my ribs are probably worth a national holiday, but uh, <clears throat> that's not how it happened. We have forgotten what this country was built on. We have two political groups in our country. One's called Republicans and one's called Democrats. And yet we don't even understand what the difference is between a republic and a democracy. And yet, how can you be a child of God and not understand how those things fit into your, into your world, into my world? We forget. We forget. We forget what our founding fathers wanted to do when they established this country. You know what? I bet, take George Washington out of the picture, I bet the average young person here this morning, and I'll give you, you know, 25 down, whatever, I bet the average young person in this city couldn't name five founding fathers and tell you just a little bit about them. Maybe none of you could. 
You know what that tells me? That tells me the real problem is that we have forgotten. We've forgotten. We've forgotten some things. You know what we forgot? I'll tell you what we forgot. We forgot that when John Adams asked Thomas Jefferson to write the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, he did. And when he brought it back to the founding fathers and they took a look at it, you know what they said? They said, this will never work. Because there's only one mention of God in the Declaration of Independence. We can never as a nation, this is what they said, we can never as a nation forget the hand of God that it played in the formulation and the foundation of this nation being formed. And John Adams sent it back to Thomas Jefferson and said, clean it up a little bit. And the final form that they all agreed on didn't have one mention of God, but it had four mentions of God. Does anybody here know the four mentions of what it deals with with God and your Bible? No, you know why? Because we have forgotten. We have forgotten as a nation where we were founded that the founding fathers, we're telling everybody today to keep God out of government, and they were saying there ain't enough God in government. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. And this is not, this is not some material you get back there where it says the Baptist idea of what a country should be. You could go to any public library in this city and get the material I'm getting. Somebody, I, I preached this message one time and somebody come up and said, wow, where did you get that? And I said, it's a conspiracy. They hide that kind of stuff in books. <laughs> when Thomas Jefferson brought the final draft, he made one reference as God as supreme lawmaker. You know why? Because they understood that the laws of God in a republic was what formed that republic. There was a reference to God as creator. It wasn't God as an intelligent design. It wasn't God as some kind of theistic evolution. It spelled out very clearly. God as creator. Why? Because they believed that God was the creator. There was a reference in it. The third reference was to God as a supreme judge. You know why? Because they understood that there was going to be a great white throne judgment. The lawmakers back there, saved and unsaved, realized to a greater degree than almost every saved person on this planet today that there was a coming judgment. And as a, and as a leader in this country, as someone who took the part of the people who made the laws and governed this land that was designed by God, that they were going to be held accountable in a day of judgment. Boy, we have forgotten that one. And then there was the fourth petition found in there, and that was God as our divine protector. That through the divine providence of God, God would protect, and we'd look to Him because of what He had already done and what He was going to do. Ladies and gentlemen, that took place a little over 226 years ago. Not a long time by European standards. <clears throat> we think in America <clears throat> that when you go up to Boston or you go out to, <clears throat> you know, up to the, uh, the eastern seaboard someplace, <clears throat> you'll find a church, that little sign out there that says, this church was established in 1789, you know. And you think, wow, that's some real history. 
American history to European history is so uh, you'll go into, over into Europe and you'll go into some churches that were built in the ninth century. I mean, you'll go into a, <coughs> some cathedrals that are in a constant state of renovation because they were built, you know, 1,500 years ago, 1,200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 800 years ago. That's some history. It just goes to show that it does not take us very long to forget. We have forgotten these things as a nation. This is why our nation is where it's at today. This is why our leadership is where it's at today. And this is why America is paying the price for what it believes. We talk a lot about separation of church and state. Let me show you the fallacy of that. <clears throat> First of all, <clears throat> is there anybody here today that knows the understanding of where the separation of church and state really started? It started with a group of Baptists from Danbury, Connecticut. And they had a thing where they had an issue that they had heard a rumor. They heard a rumor that the, that the, uh, that the government was going to establish an official church religion in the United States through the Anglican Church. So the Danbury Baptist wrote Thomas Jefferson. And they asked him, they still got the letter. And Thomas Jefferson wrote them back and said, No, that is not going to happen. That America will always, when it comes to a church-state religion, America will, always, America will always practice a separation of church and state. Hey, it wasn't church and state as far as you can't have anything in the state has to do with God. It was church and a church-state religion. We've forgotten that. You know the fallacy of that? A couple of weeks ago, we had voting day. We all voted. You know what you had? You saw a violation of situation of church and state. You see, you can't put the Ten Commandments uh, in, a, in a courthouse, but you can have a political voting booth in a church. Now, if separation of church and state is what it is, how do you get away with that? I'll tell you how you get away with it. When you're in charge, you do whatever you want to do. And, of course, that's what we're up against. We've forgotten these things. Anybody want to raise your hand today and talk to me about the Northwest Ordinance? You see, the Northwest Ordinance was an ordinance that was put into effect by Franklin, George Washington, and James Madison. You know what the Northwest Ordinance was? It was, a, it was, a, it was an ordinance that was put into effect in the early part of this country when states or territories <coughs> were going to be formed into states. And the Northwest Ordinance was put into effect that said this. <clears throat> you could not, as a territory, become a legitimate state of the United States unless you honored the Northwest Ordinances, which was put out by those three men, founding fathers, which simply said, you have to teach the Word of God in the public school system. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. Has anybody ever read George Washington's farewell address? Well, if you're, if you're a certain age, up till 1940, that probably doesn't cover anybody here, but up to 1940, it was curriculum in every public school system in the United States of America. George Washington, our first president, when he went out of office, his farewell address, you know what he did? He listed 12 points, 12 points that he was telling to the future Americans. That's why it was taught in the public school system. Twelve points that he wanted to pass on that we better never forget if we want to stay the great country we were. 
Four of them had to do with God and the Bible in your life and in this country. We forgot those things. We are the most forgetful people. 226 some years and it's gone. Every memory of what those founding fathers really wanted. Most people don't even know that the founding fathers were influenced by two of the greatest preachers they ever were preached the Word of God. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Two of the greatest preachers of the eastern seaboard that really began what we know in church history as the first great awakening. How that they, that under the preaching of Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, that, that literally shaped the country and every founding father, whether he was saved or whether he was lost, was influenced in a great way by the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Ben Franklin, by the way, who was an unsaved man, never trusted Christ as his own personal Savior. He was a deist. George Washington was a deist. He wasn't a saved man. You know what a deist is? A deist is someone who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is very God. Many of the founding fathers were not Christian in the sense of biblical Christianity. But there was an impact of the Word of God and the power of God in this country that unsaved people believed it and feared God more than saved people do today. You know why? Because we've forgotten. We've forgotten. I used to go up to Boston in that area, and I, I was stationed there when I was in the Army for a while, and I really enjoyed that area. I love that area. So much history in that area. And I had read in one of my, <coughs> one of my <coughs> studies when I did about a 10, 12-year study on church history and related it to, <coughs> you know, where we're all at in this thing. I remember reading a book that said that, that George Whitfield on Boston Commons preached on one, one, one day and 30,000 people had come to Christ. And in that book it had mentioned that there was a plaque in, on the Boston Commons that, that was where, it, where yeah, he stood in that place. Well, I was going up to Boston on a, on a, like a yearly basis. I was preaching at several churches up there. And I was doing a, a, a segmented study on church history. I'd go in on a Sunday morning and start, and I'd preach Sunday morning, Sunday night. I would tell the church, the pastor tell the church that Bob's going to come in. He's going to lay this out for us. So we're going to reschedule everything. We're going to take two hours every night, give him all the freedom. And from Sunday to Wednesday... I would lay out church history for that church. And, and, and one time up there, well, it took me about three times to find it. First time, I went by myself. I wanted to find that plaque. And I searched high and low. Second time, I thought, well, I'll enlist the help of the parks department. So I got me a ranger. The ranger was a stranger when it came to understanding where this thing was. Finally, there was an old man in the church that said, oh, I know where it was. I'll pick you up tomorrow morning and show it to you. And boy, he took me right to the spot. And there under the grass was just a little brass plaque about that big. You had to peel the grass away to look at it. And on that plaque it said, on this spot in 1770, whatever it was, George Whitfield preached and 30,000 people accepted Christ. I just wanted to stay there for a while. I thought to myself, if no other place in the world I've ever been, I know that God has been, He had been here. And I just wanted to stay there for a little while and be where the Spirit of God was so powerful that when one man preached, 30,000 people came to Christ. Ben Franklin, as I said, was an unsaved man. He was so influenced by George Whitfield. You know what he said? He said, I never took, put any money in my pocket when I went to hear George Whitfield preach. 
He says, because invertedly, when they passed the plate, I'd put every dime I had in my pocket in. He said, one night, he says, I backed off clearly one mile from the open-air meeting. One mile. And he said, I could hear every word of his message clearly. Incredible power that those men had. They changed and shaped the form. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten where this country was founded and where it's come from. And that's why we are the way we are today, and that's why we're the mess that we're in. We've forgotten that on Thursday, June 28, 1787. You know, we got some real issues in Congress right now. They can't get anything passed. They probably won't. Because there's a lot of bickering going on back and forth, and that's just the way it is. I mean, when you get two opposing sides or whatever it is, I mean, uh, we talk about reaching across the aisle. We only reach across the aisle in Congress and Senate to lob a hand grenade on the other side. There's no, there's no working together for you and me. It's past the point where anybody cares about us. You understand that, don't you? It's what their own personal agendas want by the lobbyists and what they want to do. You and I are out of the equation. They don't care. But what you got here is this. We've forgotten. We've forgotten that on Thursday, June 28, 1787, before we ever had agreed on a constitution, before we'd ever agreed on a, on a, a declaration of independence, Congress again had come to a standstill. Just like today. They was fighting between the parties. There is bickering going on of what it should say and what it shouldn't say. And it had absolutely stalled the process and it looked like this country probably was not going to go any farther. And then on that fake great day, Ben Franklin. Now, at this particular point in his life, he was 81 years of old, age and he was in very poor health. And he's still an unsaved man. He probably gave his most stirring political address of his political career. Because on that day he stood before a bickering Congress who was trying to get their own agendas and everybody wants. And they had, in that early day, they had forgotten where they had just been a short time ago. And Ben Franklin, an unsaved man, stood before that Congress on that day and he said simply this, You men have forgotten that 13 years ago where we were and the struggle we were in and it looked like that the British were going to take Washington and we were all going to be hanged as spies and rebels and tyrants. And he says, you have forgotten that on that day, in our darkest hour, we all fell on our knees and asked God for the guidance that we needed to have. You know what Congress did? They shut down for the next three days. And they went from church to church to church to church and had the pastor and said simply to him, preach to us, put us on fire and get us back to God. And after three days, a revival broke out and they went back in Congress. You have the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that we have today because of things like that. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. On just another quick note here, do you know what's wrong with Bible Christianity today? We've forgotten. We've forgotten who we are in Christ Jesus. We've forgotten what we believe. We've forgotten why we believe it. There's people who 
come to this church and look at this church and people who, and you have them in your own, you know, in, in people that you brought here before. Or in some cases, your moms and your dads. When they, when they, when they, when they, when you see you come to church here and you hear it all the time, heard it all my life. Well, you're involved in a cult. Well, bottom line is this. The reason why we hear that so much today is because we have forgotten what the true church is supposed to believe. You know, Westfield and Whitfield and, and, and Jonathan Edwards, I believe exactly what they believe. I taught, teach exactly what they... You know who Billy Sunday was? You know who J. Frank Norris was? You know who Dwight Talmage was? You know who that Mordecai Ham was? You know who all those great preachers were? Well, this church stands on exactly what they taught. You know why you get that? Because you don't know what the real deal looks like. You've forgotten. We've forgotten. We don't know what the truth is anymore. We use those things as a cloak to get what we want done. But we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten what we believe. We've forgotten why we believe it. We've forgotten how God has protected us and brought us to where we're at today as Christians. You couldn't take a, a, a map and, and run back through history and show a true line that you could ever keep from getting some false teaching and follow it right through. That's why that chart is up there. You can follow that chart and we are right on that chart where every Bible-believing, Bible-oriented, everybody who ever held the Word of God where it is, we believe today exactly what they believed in 1900, 1800, 1700, right back to where it goes. You see, we've lost our roots. Lost our roots. Listen, 95% of my ministry is not teaching you something new. 95% of my ministry is reminding you of things you've forgotten. You know what our infirmity is, me and you individually, as a child of God? You know what our problem is, why we struggle with things? I'll tell you why. Because we have forgotten what God has done for us. Individually. God's people today are the most unthankful people in all the world. Selfish, self-centered, unforgiving, worldly, spoiled, the biggest bunch of misfits you have ever seen in your life. Why is it, ladies and gentlemen, we as Christians today, why is this? Why is it that we always insist on focusing on what we don't have Instead of looking what we do have. We've forgotten. We've forgotten that the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6. That godliness with contentment is great gain. You know for a number of years when I first came to Kansas City. I worked as a youth pastor at, at, uh, with Truman Dollar. And I, Truman Dollar was one of, I, I, he was, he was a, a, he, I learned more. He's one of the three men in my life that really formed and shaped my aspect of the ministry. And, and, I, and, I, and I used to spend time, and I, I get to drive him different places when he spoke down to Springfield, and he'd ask me to drive him down there, and I had some, I had some great in-depth conversations with him to find out, you know, what he really thought. Because he was a man who represented, really, Christianity in the 70s and the 80s. And he was a bright and upcoming star in the, in the, in the fellowship. And, you know, I wanted to learn everything I could. And I, I, I remember one time we had a particular issue uh, uh, in, in, a, in the church back there, and I didn't know all the ramifications of it, but uh, uh, he just started to talk to me, and I could tell he was frustrated. And, he, and, he, and, a, and a conversation came around, and he, said, he looked over to me, and he says, Bob, he says, remember this. 
He says, I know you're young. And he says, uh, he says you, you got a great future. He said, but I want you to remember this. He says, people are never going to remember what you did for them yesterday. They're always going to want to know what you're going to do for them today. You know what? When he said that, I, honest, honest, I didn't really understand what he said. But you know what? That was probably 30-some 30, 30 years ago. I know exactly what he's talking about now. And with that same thing, let me just say this. Let me just say this. I have a lot of faults. I, I know that. But let me tell you one, one fault that I do not have. If I, can, if I can tell you one that I do not have. I have plenty that I won't tell you about. <laughs> but, but let me tell you one I don't have. And that is ingratitude. I want you to know that I'll never come to the place in my life that I, that I will think that this church is what it is because of me. Never. Never. I know that some of you love this church. I know that some of you love this ministry. Yes, I know that some of you love me. I know when there's ever a dirty job to be done that some of you are the first in and the last out. I know that whatever I do that uh, tries to make this thing as an outreach, that, that you're there with me and you help me and that I can count on you and whatever there's a dirty job to be done. I, it's not because of me. It's because you love God, you love this church, and you understand that, that what it takes to make this thing work. And I've got a lot of faults, but I, ingratitude is not one of them. And I want to tell you, someday at the judgment seat of Christ, someday at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to stand there and you're going to be where you all through this, you were the behind the scenes. You see, you look at me up here and I teach Sunday morning and I, I teach Thursday night, you know, and, and I'm the one that everybody gets focused on and I'm the one that, you know, that solves your problem for the most part, uh, you know, and all of that. And so there's a tendency to think that, that this place couldn't run without me. And the bottom line, the truth of that is that if that's just not true. That's just not true. I know that someday I'll be gone and someday that if Jesus doesn't come, I'll no longer be able to pastor this church. And I know that, that uh, somebody here will take that church over. And I understand that the church will, you know, nobody can be a Bible examiner. Thank God for that. You know, there's only one of me. But and it'll redefine itself. And it'll refocus itself. And it'll move right on and it'll never end. You know why? Because it isn't my church. God's church. The real important part of this work is not me. It's you. And I never, I never think for a minute that it's me. I never think for a second that it's, that it's, that it's something that, that I have or something that I do. I'm just part of it that God has put here. God has built it around my personality, built it around the way that I am. But you know what? God, when I die, if Christ hasn't come and He can lift that thing out, put somebody else inside of that, the church will just reform itself around that. And because the absolute principles are the same, It'll just move right on down the line. Some of you have stood through this church through thick and thin. You figured out that this church is in its mission. You declared in your life that this is God's work and you're going to build yourself into it. And you have, you have, you see, I, I can't claim that. I get paid for what I do. I mean, a great passage here is in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 17 verse 9. A servant doesn't get reward for what he's supposed to do. I get paid for this. You don't. You do it because you have figured out that it's God's program, it's God's, past, uh, God's passion, and you have put yourself in it. I don't kid myself for a second. 
When I look at all goes on around here and all the things behind the scenes that need to be done, and when I put on an activity, you know, and have to do something, we want to outreach to this or do this or do that, it's never a doubt in my mind, never a doubt in my mind, never a doubt in my mind that this work wouldn't exist and could not go on without some of you, many of you, who realize what this work is and realize that it isn't mine, it isn't yours, it's God's. We're just the stewards of it. But I want you to know I will never take you for granted. I will never not appreciate what you do. And I also want you to know I, I know when you, what you do and where you do it and what you do for this church. I know what you do. I know when there's something being done out there and an activity being done and you're there. I know that when, when something has to happen and you cover the bases, you got it done. I know that when you work with people, how you go that extra mile and how you, well, you know what, uh, there's certain things in your life that you just basically, you don't, schedule, you, schedule, you don't schedule your life around church, you schedule church around your life. I appreciate that. But we've forgotten some things. Now, in this passage, in Psalm 77, look at verse 10. He lists three things not to forget. And your life and my life with the child of God, these are the three things that we have to focus on, because this is exactly what we forget. He says in verse 10, remember the years. Remember the years. You know what that's dealing with? You know what every Christian has to remember? You, we need to remember what it was like before God saved us. Now, I'm not one who likes to dwell on the past, and, and, you know, and I don't think anybody needs to drag up all the glorification of what, they, what their sin was. I, I, I mean, it's, there's a time and place for all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about remember the years. Remember what it was like when you were unsaved. Remember all the years without God. Remember the difference that he made when he came into your life and now you look back and remember the contrast from darkness into light. You remember back then the things that you thought were important and now after four or five years of being saved, the things that are important. You know, it's funny that time has a way of, of, of misfiguring things. We, are, are we, get fees, we, get, we get freeze fixed in our mind. I'll meet somebody that I haven't seen, you know, for 15, 20 years. And in my mind, I remember them the way they were the last time I saw them, you know. And then I look at them and, boom, they're 15, 20 years older. And I think it was, I, I, all the times I say, oh, this must be his dad. Oh, no, it's him. A couple of years ago, I went back to my home, 1451 Old Avenue. No, somebody else lives in it now. My mom moved down the road. And I went up there, and it was for sale. So I went in there and I asked, well, if they're for sale, they're probably showing it. So I went up there and I asked the woman who came to the door. I said, you know what? I said, I was born and raised in this house. And I said, I've been out of it. I said, would you mind? I know you got it for sale. I wouldn't ask this. But would you mind before you sell it? If, if, could, you, could I just go through and, and, and remind myself what it was? And she said, oh, sure, come in. You know what? The first thing that struck me, how small it was. Because in my mind, I remember it being a Taj Mahal. We went upstairs in the bathroom. I, we had to walk in this way. It was, it was, it was tiny. I, re, I walked into, my, into my, my dad's bedroom, which became my bedroom. And I thought to myself, how in the world did I ever get all my junk in here? 
I look in, in the other bedroom. We only had a two-bedroom house, and everybody had to kind of keep sleeping shifts, you know. <coughs> and, and it was just, it was small. I walked out in the backyard. When I was a kid, it was hundreds of acres. Now it's just 20 feet. We forget, don't we? I never the first time I went to my mom's house. And after years of, you know, being out here and going back home, and, you know, and she had put all our, put my senior picture up on the wall, my, my sister's on one side, me on the other. And I remember walking in there and, and coming in there, and I hadn't seen my senior picture for like 20 years. And I'm certainly, I'm senior now, but not senior picture in the same way. And, and, and I remember walking in there, and I thought to myself, who in the world is that? That's me. Man, I was good looking. <laughs> you know, and, and I thought to myself, who is that? Who is that? We forget what we look like. You know why? Because we get fixed in our minds the way things are. That's what we do. That's what we do. Time has a way of changing things. You know what else we forget? We forget how the world treated us before we got saved. Yeah, we go to a point because we forget the day. Forget the, uh, forget the, don't remember the years. We forget how it was. We forget how it was before we got saved. You know Israel again had the same problem? You ever read over there in Numbers chapter 11 verse 45? They're out of Egypt now and they've been coming down the road here and they're probably out, oh, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And now they're out in the, they're out in the back side of the desert. God has supernaturally brought them through, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and now is supernaturally feeding them with a manna and a quail from heaven. He's provided everything that they need. And in this particular passage here in Numbers chapter 11 verse 45, you see exactly the problem you and I have, they have forgotten what it was like in Egypt. And to me, it's one of the greatest passages and statements in the Bible, the way you and I, the way you and I uh, look at things. They're talking about the fact that, first of all, all we got to eat is this old dry manna. They say, we remember the days in Egypt when we used to eat the fish and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the onions, and the garlic, freely. Freely? You were slaves. Your grandfather was crushed by one of those big rocks they were moving. You had the scars on your back. You starved to death. You slept out in the rain. You slept out in the mud. And they, you had a taskmaster. They whipped your back. You worked 24-7. You never got a day off. You worked till you died. Freely? Ah, we forget, don't we? We forget what the world does to us. They're building the pyramids for 24-7. You and I in a world system that wants to destroy us. Making bricks and then having to keep a certain tally. And when you don't do it right, they take away the straw and make you keep the same tally. And then punish you if you don't. Make you slave labor. Work to your death, starvation, cruel taxmasters, whips and scourges. That's the world, see. Enslaving us into a slave-like atmosphere that has one purpose. Work you 24-7 by the world system and then leave you dead in the road when it's done with you. We forget. We forget. You know why I never going back to the world? Not saying I'll do everything right. But I can guarantee you, I will not go back to that world system. You know why? Because I remember the years. I remember what it was like. We've forgotten. 
The first thing he says there, we need to remember the years. Then the second thing he says in verse 10, we need to remember thy works. You know, the greatest work in your life and my life was the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. You know where, where remember the years is a picture of the time before you were saved, remembering that? You know what the remembering the works is about? It's remembering the day God saved you. Remember the day God delivered you? Remember how happy you were? Remember how the first day you got saved and you went out that door, you, did, you, you hadn't learned to keep your mouth shut, you told everybody. Remember the first when you got saved when God delivered you? Those early days, those early, nothing could stop you. You had the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. Your eyes sparkled. Your cheeks flushed. I mean, you were so excited. You would never be late for this, never be late for that. Boy, you wouldn't miss a thing. You were always there because you knew what God had done and a great change in your life. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. We've forgotten. Why are God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven so indifferent to God at this point in their life? How'd you lose the joy, the passion of serving God? Now it's a labor where once you couldn't wait to do it. Where once he was first, now we work him in around our busy schedules. And we wonder why our life has so many problems. Listen, his death on the cross, my friend, is the key to everything. You remember the works, the finished work of Christ. Remember the price that was paid. You know, young Christians, and, you, and, I, and I tell you this, and I see it. Young Christians, when you get saved, and I see it in this church, and it's a good thing, but you've got to understand it. As a young Christian, you get saved, you've got a lot of emotion. You've got a lot of excitement. But the downside is you don't have any depth to you. You don't have any roots down yet. Or you got saved and you got a weight off your shoulders of a thousand pounds and you feel better and you're in a place now where everybody loves you and you can grow and you can really go and do what God wants you to do and you feel the burden, as all the songs say, burdens were lifted at Calvary, you know, and you, you, you got a new life, a new beginning, a new creature in Christ Jesus and you're excited about it. But the problem is you got to change that emotion and through the process of the putting the Word of God in your life, you got to turn that emotion into passion. No, there's a difference between emotion and passion. Emotion has no direction. It's just emotion. Passion has a purpose. Passion has a perspective. Passion has a direction. And when you understand that when you got saved, oh, you go get your new Bible, you get your this, you get your that, you just line up, you line up on all the books, you're going to know it, you're so excited, you read it every day, you pray, and, stuff, and then after a while... After a while, it kind of loses its excitement. Where after a while, you wouldn't miss Thursday night if your life depended on it as a young Christian. After a while, ah, oh, well, I got this tonight, or I got to do this. Oh, after a while, well, I can't be there this Sunday because I got to go do this or that, and I could do it later, but you know what? I need to go ahead and do it. And the, all, the, all the emotion begins to fade, and because there was no stabilizing in the Word of God, no principles that you took that, that, that emotion and develop it into passion. That's the problem. You know why that is? Because we don't keep in our hearts and our minds the day God saved us. And the crucifixion just becomes like Easter, Christmas, and your birthday. We forget the price that was paid. Grounded in truth. I told you this a couple of Thursday nights ago. 
When you really want to understand the price that was paid for you on Calvary's cross, <clears throat> you don't go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give you the skeleton outline of the crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John basically gives you the historical perspective. Oh, it's a tremendous moving passage when you just read it. But if you really want to understand, if, if you never want to forget what happened the day God's work finished for you and for me, you don't get it out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You go back to Job. You go back to Isaiah. You go back to Zechariah. You go back to Jeremiah. You go back to the book of Psalms. I guarantee for you, my friend, every moment from when he stands before Pilate right up to the time when he dies on that cross and he pays the ultimate price is recorded for you and for me. From hour to hour, almost minute to minute, when they lifted him up, when they put the nails in his hands and his feet, when they laughed at him, when they made fun of him and shot dice for his garment, every aspect is recorded showing you not just what happened to him, but what he was thinking on the cross of Calvary as he hung there and paid the price. And ladies and gentlemen, whether you know it or not, he had your name on his lips. That is one of the most personal aspects in our discipleship lesson. I think it's lesson three, isn't it? No, maybe lesson two. We talk about the ordinances. Two ordinances in your Bible. One of them is the Lord's Supper. The other one is baptism. And when we explain that, or at least when I explain it, I, uh, I, I take, that, uh, take that concept of the Lord's Supper and I show that in the Bible, the biblical way it's done is the way we do it here. Uh, is there, there's two aspects to it. There's the difference between the Lord's Supper and then there's communion. They, it looks like in the early church there in, in the book of Corinthians that they all met together first for a meal. And they sat down and they ate together. And then after they had that meal together, the fellowship meal, which is called the Lord's Supper based on the last supper they had up there in the room, uh, they, have that, they have that meal together with everybody together. And then it looks like that from that point they move into what we call the uh, communion. Now the word communion means togetherness. It means a oneness. And what happens is this, and I tell people this when I disciple them. I tell them that and this was the process. They all were to come together and, and eat together. Because you know why? Because you know we all get in a good mood after we get a good meal. That's human nature. I can be the foulest mood in the world and sit down and have a nice meal and feel good about it and I, and I don't care what you do. You can do whatever you want to do. I'm happy now, see? Because we're that carnal. Nothing has really changed except my fat gut got some more food in it, see? And it's your thing now where you, you're happy because your flesh is satisfied. But God understands that, that before you get to the communion side, there needs to be a time of fellowship with other believers. So what do they do? They... They, God uses human nature. They get together and they have a meal. They sit around and they talk. They get some of Grandma's fried chicken, some of Aunt Betsy's, some of Aunt Betsy's baked beans, and you get some of this, and you get so and so's apple pie, and you get it all down there, and we all eat, and we're all sitting around, and and you know suddenly we start feeling good about everything, you know, and then the Lord Spirit says, okay, well what about so and so over here? Oh yeah, you know what? And so what you do is you you start feeling good, you get full belly, and you get everything going, you know. And then you you start getting tied into boy, 
this is a great, boy, this is a great place God's given us. I just love everybody. Oh, I love this. And God said, you love that person over there? Well, you kind of, kind of love that person. But God said, well, you better love everybody. And so you know what you do? You go over and you say, you know what? I'm really, uh, you know what? This is such a great time. I, I, I didn't mean to. I'm not going to shake my hand. Oh, thank you. I really, I'm sorry everything I said about you. You forgive me? Done, done. Ding, dong, dung, dong. Okay, good. And, and, and is that what you do? And now you start saying, oh, and I got so-and-so over here. You know what? I'm sorry I ran. I, I was the one that ran over your dog and just kept on going. I'm sorry about that. You know what? And, and, you, and you, you, you get it right? You get in a fellowship attitude. You thank God for what you've got there. And then you know where you go? You do that together. You do that together. That happens as a church. But then you move into the communion part. And when you go into that part, you can't go as a group. Oh, you will. But you go one by one. Oh, we're all sitting here in a group. But you commune with God between you and God. It's between you and Him. You know why you can have the meal and have everybody together and enjoy that? But when it comes to the communion, it's got to be between you and Him. You and Him. Because when He died on the cross, it was between you and Him. That's why. Me and Him. He wants you to look at that, His death on the cross and like the only person he was thinking about on that cross was you. Church is getting a lot of fights about things. You know, I like to see a good fight in the church over. Somebody saying, well, he died for me. And across the aisle saying, no, he died for me. And he said, he did not, did too. And then you two just knocked down, drag out right here in front of everybody over who he really died for. The truth of the matter is, I wouldn't break it up. You know why? Because they're both right. He died for you and couldn't care less about her. From your perspective. He died for you. Didn't care less about her. From your perspective. Now you want some bad news? He died for me. Didn't care either one about you. <laughs> and everybody in this room. Ought to look at the death of Christ. And the cross. Just that way. You know why you don't? You know why you forget? Because you don't look at it that way. That's why. It's a historical event to you. That's all it is. Remember the works. Remember the day God saved you. Your relationship with God should be greater today than the day you got saved. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. You forgot. You forgot. Only one way. Only one way to keep that from happening. And that is to remember every day of your life the work that God put in your life. The work. The day he died for you on that cross and you go back to those Old Testament passages and you understand. You see it. It becomes something that you identify with. Something you can't even get through without breaking down and weeping in your heart. Because of the fact that you understand, you understand the work. Then the last thing. Verse 10 again. Remember thy wonders. You see... We got to remember the years. That's before you got saved. You got to remember the work. That's the day God saved you. Then you got to always remember the wonders. That's what God's doing in your life since you got saved. That's what He's doing in your life. The miracles that God has done in your life. You know, to me, the greatest book in the Bible from a personal standpoint in my relationship with God of showing me the whole big picture. The greatest book in the Bible to me is the book of Esther. There's only two books in the Bible. I don't know if you know this or not. There's only two books in the Bible that when you find them, the name of God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit of God is not mentioned in any way, shape, or form. Only two. 
Everything else, you've got the Lord, Jesus, this, that. There's only two books in your Bible where you find absolutely no mention of God, Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord God, Lord, Holy Spirit, not a thing. Not a thing. One of them is the book of Esther. You know why that book is such an important book to me? Because there's times in my life, just like there's going to be times in your life, when you're going to go through something or something's going to befall you, that it's going to get real dark and real black and real bleak. And you're going to have a tendency to God to think that to think that God's got so many billions of people that He looks out for, you got lost in the shuffle someplace. And yet, when you read the book of Esther, you'll find a book where God is not mentioned one place, one time, in any way, shape, or form. You'll find a situation that's seemingly out of control. And yet, you'll find behind the scenes, God is orchestrating every event from behind the scenes. That's a great comfort to me. Because I want you to know that the orchestration and the organization of God behind the scenes of your life is always going on. It does, see, we focus so many times on what we see instead of focusing on what we know. There'll be times that I look out there and I don't see anything. And that has a tendency to shake you up unless you focus on what you already know for sure. That's what I mean about the Bible impregnating your heart to the degree that you have such a relationship with that book that when darkness comes, when tough times come, when things happen in your life, when your life goes upside down, it's not about the event. It's about the one that's orchestrating the events in your life. That's why I tell you young men for ministry, and I lay it out to you all the time, that the thing that you have to constantly do is look around, look behind, and look ahead in every aspect of your life. When I look back, I see the hand of God in my life. And I'll tell you what, it's in, it, the absolute wonder that He's done to get me here where I'm at in my life today. You know, I look at how many times He spared my life, even before I was saved. I look back at the goofy situations I put myself in before I was saved where I could have been snuffed out and killed just like that. I look at the goofy things that, that we've all done and I've done in my life and, and how that God has spared my life from disaster. Because it's just a stupid thing that I said, I, I'll, I'll do this. I can do that. Oh, yeah, that's only 2,000 feet high. I can do it. And you know what? And God could have, God had to do was take his hand off for one second. I think of how many times he's used me. And there's anybody that is unworthy to be used to preach the Bible. It's you. I mean me. It's me. It's me. I, I don't understand why God chose me. You know what? Being a pastor, without a doubt, to me, this is why I don't deserve it. Being a pastor, being a pastor is the greatest calling on this planet. It's better than any kingship. It's better than any, any presidency. It's better than any, anything. There's no money that can buy it. Being a pastor is the greatest privilege and the greatest calling on planet Earth. I understand why God put me into it. That's not where I was headed in my life. If I'd have kept on my life the way I'd going, I'd been dead by now, I guarantee you. I'd have been in some war somewhere, someplace, and would have got one right between the eyes. But God in His hand. I look back and I see how my course was going back then, what I wanted to do, make a career out of the military, do what I wanted to do, and God reached His hand down and said, i got other plans for you. At the time, I was upset about it because I wanted to be a career soldier. And at the time, I wanted to give my life to it. But you know what? And I was upset and mad. Here I was during the Vietnam War. Everybody else wanted to get out, couldn't. I wanted to stay in, couldn't stay in. I was mad. 
but I look back on it now and I understand his wonders. I see what he did. <clears throat> I think of how many times he's given me the courage to stand for right. <clears throat> how many times he's given me the courage when I was scared to death to stay in the fight. I remember the wonders. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Do you have a list? Do you have a list? He's been saved <clears throat> five years or more. <clears throat> Do you have a list of the wonders <clears throat> that he's done for you that have got you where you're at today? I remember an airport in Chicago 20-some years ago, maybe longer than that. <clears throat> I was flying from Kansas City to uh, Mount Pelier, Vermont, a friend of mine's church. <clears throat> he had me up to preach, and I was going to kick off that night. He had a big thing going, a big banquet going, and it was, uh, it was just a big thing. And I left that morning and, and uh, flew, had to go through Chicago. Well, my light, as you might know, the flight in Kansas City was delayed. And then when you get to Chicago, you know, uh, it, uh, it, the plane was on time, but uh, my, all, many planes were delayed. And now this flight that was going to get me to Mount Pelier, which uh, was going to leave at like at 4 o'clock and get in at, at 5.30, I had to preach at 7, which was going to be get, picking at the airport and getting me to go. <coughs> we got more people and they got seats on the plane. I go up to the gate and the woman said, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Alexander, I'm sorry. Um, we just don't have a seat for you. We just don't have a seat for you. And I said, well, I said, uh, when's the next flight? I said, are you going to put another plane out here? Are you, you know, and she says, well, she says, the next flight's at 7.30, gets in at 8.30. Well, I, I said, well, ma'am, that ain't going to do me any good. I got a speaking engagement at, at 7 o'clock. I said, I was just going to have enough time. She says, I'm really sorry, Mr. Alexander. She says, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. Now, <clears throat> everybody else down the line who had appointments were throwing a fit. One guy was cussing her out. Oh, I'm kidding you. One lady was mad, going to sue the airlines. Knew what I did? I got me one of them hot dogs with a lot of sauerkraut on it. <laughs> Don't have them in Chicago. Know what I'm talking about? I walked away and I said, okay. And she said, we've got a standby list here. She said, would you, uh, we'll put you on a list. And I said, that's fine. And, uh, and they take the list by how you come and check in, see? So she says, I'll, I'll put you on the list. And I said, that's fine. So I walk away from the thing there, and here's my attitude. And, and I'll be honest with you, I wish I could always have this attitude in life. I don't. I don't want to stand up here and pretend that, I'm, you know, that I always react this way. As soon as I show you this one, I'm going to show you how I react in other situations. And, you know, you can make a good contrast. I walked away from the guest that day, and I say, well, Lord, you know what? Hey. You know I want to preach. You know I'm prepared to preach. You know I got the message that he needs, and you know you put me into this scenario. Now, I'm ready. I have no control over this airline. I have no control over this nice lady who everybody's giving a tough time to. You know, I have done my job. You, I got a phone call. Can you come? Yes, I can. Will you do this? Yes, I will. I prepared myself, and now here I am in Chicago. Now, I've done my part. You better do yours, but I'm going to go get me a hot dog. <laughs> And probably two. I went down to that thing, got me a hot dog, two. Sat down there and ate my hot dog. I could still hear people screaming and yelling up there. Guy was throwing his ticket down like that and shaking his fist. I went back up, plane was going to leave in an hour. I sit down in there and just said, hey, you know what? I guess he'll figure it out when I don't get off the plane up there. They boarded the plane. Closed the door. 
About two minutes later, the door opened back up. The lady that I was nice to and talked to came out with a lady behind her. And she says, Mr. Alexander, she says, this lady here and her boy was going to get on this flight, and we miscalculated. And instead of having two seats, one for her and her boy, we only have one seat, and she doesn't want to go and leave her boy. I'm not going to send her boy. So we have a seat available now. Would you like to get on the plane? I said, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, I will. Thank you. So I walked down an aisle, and I said, I remember one time we were in Brazil. So you know I'm not lying. Steve was there. We were down there trying to work with, work with this pastor to get the King James Bible into Brazil, and they didn't like it. And all the Bible scholars down there thought they were going to put an end to it. So 22 Bible scholars challenged me to a debate in front of everybody in a big auditorium hold about 2,000 people. And, they, and the guy, pastor come up, and, and, and you asked me, you said, would you, would you, would you debate them? 14, 15, 20-some guys by myself. I said, why, sure. Hung up the phone. I said, what did I just say sure for? What's wrong with me? You know what? I said, hey, God, it's your book. I'm not going to defend it. I said, I've studied it. I've laid it out. I know where I'm at. I know what I believe. That's all I'm going to get up and tell them. Well, we went down there, had a whole week. They were pushing it every Sunday night, talking about it. Big debate this Sunday. Come and see Bob Alexander. You're going to take these guys on. We're going to find out what the King James Bible and the correct chapters of the right text. Da, 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 da. And I got to be honest with you. As I got close to that thing, I thought to myself, you know what? I should have went to Bermuda. It would have been a great time to go to Bermuda. <laughs> well, God says, hey, look, you shoot your mouth off all the time, and, uh, you know, and you tell everybody back in your place, you know, where it's at, just shoot your mouth off up here and tell everybody here. So we go that, Sunday, that Saturday morning. Steve was there. We go that Saturday morning, and uh, the pastor was there, Finini, Dr. Finini. Pastor Finini was there, and he comes up all flush-faced, and he's all upset and mad as, a, mad as a hen. And I said, and what's the deal? And he says, well, he says, these guys didn't show up. And he said, I've got all these people out here now that uh, want to hear about this and hear about that, and nobody showed up. So you know what I got to do? I got to stand up and take the time and preach what a King James Bible is the Word of God and a text receptor is the Word of God. Okay? I never forget those things. Never forget those things. Do I deserve that? Absolutely not. You know what I had to be right now? I had to be in hell, screaming my lungs out for just a touch of somebody to put water to my tongue. That's where I deserve to be. That's where I deserve to be. I don't deserve to be here. But I'll never forget the fact that he put me here. I'll remember what he did to get me here. Remember the wonders. I remember the men that God's put in my life that teach me the Bible. Some of them are dead now. Some of them are getting ready to die. They'll all be dead probably in 10 years if Jesus doesn't come. I remember the time they spent with me and took time, let me ask goofy questions, put up with my stupidness, put up with my, my emotional, you know, great ideas that I had, you know, and just put up with me, put up with me, put up with me, put up with me. You know why? Because evidently they saw something in me that was worth putting up with. I never forget what they've done in my life. I'm not one that's in gratitude toward what somebody does for me. Somebody invests their life in me and honestly and openly helps me and puts me this, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. Because I've learned that the key, the problem we have is forgetting. We forget. We forget. We forget the wonders. Do you have a list? I had a young man. I had a young man that went into the ministry a number of years ago. And, and I look at guys like him, and, and so many times I see the same thing in so many of you. He had come along in my ministry, and he had grown. He was ready to step out, and he was going to take a church, and he was a good kid. He come in to see me 
the day before his ordination, and, you know, he was moving another place, and he was, you know, he came in, and he, he said to me, he says, Bob, he says, I, I said, I got to talk to my father and the Lord. And I said, go ahead, buddy, what's up? He says, I'm scared to death. He says, I'm leaving my family, I'm leaving my job, I'm leaving my home. He says, I'm going out here, I'm going to do this. He says, it's all new. He said, he says I just got to be honest with you, I'm scared to death. I'm excited, but I am absolutely scared to death. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? I said, here's how you deal with that. Remember the wonders. Remember the years. Remember the work. I said, I remember the first day you come in here. Five years ago, six years ago. They were, you not only didn't know anything, you were so stupid you didn't suspect anything. <laughs> and I watched how God molded you and made you, brought you where he's brought you. I watched God put this in your life and put that in your life. I watched you grow here. I remember when you preached the first sermon. I remember when that fire in your eye, when you first figured things out on the Word of God. I said, now you hear, you're standing on a day when God is going to launch you out. And it's absolutely 100% okay for you to be scared. But here's what you've got to take with you. God didn't bring you this far to drop you tomorrow. He brought you this far to finish it tomorrow. Oh, the devil will try to get you to fear. And we'll forget in a moment of panic what he's done. That it was him that brought me here. It was him that got you here. It was him that got you where he wanted and now he's going to take you up the next level. Admittedly, it's a scary stairwell. Unless you take with you and remember the wonders, the years, and the work. I see that in so many of you. I see in so many of you that you focus on the struggles that you're going through. You focus on the defeats and the issues that you have to confront every day in your life. But I see what you don't see yet. I see that God is through those things, is molding you and bringing you and getting you where you want to go because God can only get you to greater things. Hey, don't you all have a t-shirt by Gold Jim that says, no pain, no gain? What in life do you have to do that isn't associated with pain if you gain? Whatever you got to go through in life to get where you want to go, there's sacrifices that have to be made. There's pain involved with it. But the process is you always focus on what God is doing in life. I say it again. This church is God's church. It's as New Testamently pure as I can make it. God uses this church in many ways. For some of you, it's a new beginning. For others, it's your last stop. But that's just the way it is. God will bring you to a place where you have to face the issues that keep you from going all the way and deal with them by, by seeing what He's done in your life and then moving through the next one. Or you'll stay where you're at. You'll not go through it. And you'll just pretend that He's using you. And you'll just go through that mode all the rest of your life. Remember the wonders. You know, some of you young men and, and some of you, and I, you know, if you notice, as I preach, I'll just drop a little thing here, a little thing there that is probably a, a, a key to ministry that you want to jot down someplace. I don't know if you do or you don't, but I, I kind of antidote my message with little things that are so true if you're ever going to stand and be a leader in ministry and be a pastor of a church. The ministry is people. But in the ministry, to keep yourself positive and keep yourself focused. You never focus on people. You just can't. 
We're all flesh. We're all weak. We're all going to fail. You're going to let me down. I'm going to let you down. People who are your friends today will be your enemies tomorrow. In the ministry, you can never focus on people. But you always focus on the wonders that God does in your life. Because the people will fail. I'll fail. The wonders never fail. You have to, in the ministry, you have to focus on what God is doing with you. What He's doing with others. People change, but the wonders never change. As the great verse says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now look at verse 12, and we're finished here. I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of thy doing. You know what the litmus test is for any church? The litmus test of any church, it's also true of Christians. The litmus test of any church or any Christian is what that church talks about. You're either going to talk about what God's doing or what so-and-so is doing. See how easy it is? The reason why we get into the mode that we get in, because God is not doing anything in our lives, so we have to talk about something else, somebody else, instead of what God's doing and the wonders that He's doing in our lives. You notice what it says there? You ever notice what families talk about? It says, also of all thy works and talk of thy doing. What does your family talk about around a table? When you sit down and eat at night? When you kind of recap the day? Are you, you wonder why our kids come out so negative because we sit around and we blast everybody or this person or that person and we talk about this and talk about that because we have nothing to say that is, that is constructive of what God, the wonder that God is doing in our lives. Incredible. And then verse 13, and here it is. And I'll leave you with this. He says in verse 12, I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Now look at that. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was within the Holy of Holies the tabernacle that they carried throughout the nation of Israel's journey for those 40 years. Within that tabernacle was the sanctuary. The sanctuary was where the Holy of Holies was. The sanctuary was a place that only one man went in. All the other priests could work out here in the area of the tabernacle, but when it came to going into the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary, only one man could go in. Now that's a picture of what, in the New Testament, of where you and I are at with the Lord. Where in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was a physical place that one priest went in. In the New Testament, the sanctuary is my heart and your heart. It's the most holy place in our lives. And just like when we talked about communion, we can all sit around and have the Lord's Supper. But when it comes to communion, only you can go in. Because it's right between you and Him. And when you take the Word of God and you take the wonders, the works, and the, and the years and put those things, they've got to go in the sanctuary. When you talk about them, he says, oh, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That's your heart. And we know that the Bible says that in the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We say what's really in our hearts. Because when you have the things in your heart that you remember the years, you remember the work, you remember the wonders. You'll never forget what God did. And forgetting... Forgetting is the third infirmity 
and it's the worst problem we've got. Because there's just so many things out there, so many sparkly, shiny things, so many glittery relationships, so many things that give us the impression that, that it's much more important than the things of God. And in actuality, my friend, all of those things will just dull your senses that you too will forget. Yes, you'll forget the years before He saved you. And then you'll want to go back to the world. You'll forget the work that He did on Calvary's cross. And because you don't understand what He did for you, it'll translate down in every aspect of your life. And then, yes, you'll forget the wonders. You'll focus on what you don't have and not look at all that God has given you that you do have. And that's really the key. Every head bowed and every eye closed.